The Guardian. Hello, I'm Tim Maybe, and this is Guardian Daily on Friday the 25th of June. Today we look at the bloody battle over the alleged Jamaican drug lord Christopher Dudus Koch and his eventual arrest. He's just arrived in the United States under guard from armed members of the Drugs Enforcement Administration after he was extradited to face drugs and gun running charges. Anything to say to all the uh, people who died in Jamaica? Any thoughts about what happened down there? Forty-two year old Christopher Dudas Coke has been described as the Don of criminal dons. Until recently, he was regarded by many as the most powerful man in Jamaica. Last month, when the Jamaican government said it would extradite Coke, his gangs attacked police stations. That prompted the declaration of a state of emergency in the capital and the biggest security force mobilisation in Jamaica's history. Hundreds of soldiers and police swept into Tivoli Gardens in search of Coke. He and his men fled after days of fighting. Witnesses said security forces summarily killed some detainees. The operations in Tivoli Gardens are being maintained to allow for detailed search for illegal guns. During this period of public emergency, a concerted effort will be made to go after the criminal gunmen in whatever community they may be ensconced. In the exchanges that ensued, several persons have been confirmed dead including one member of the Jamaica Defence Force and several others, including 12 Jamaica Defence Force soldiers, have been injured. The police report that 26 persons are confirmed dead, but it is likely that the number is higher. The security forces wish to confirm that uh, Christopher Lloyd Pope, in respect of whom the police are holding a warrant of arrest for the commencement of extradition proceedings, was arrested this afternoon at 4. 42-year-old Coke is wanted in the United States on drug and gun trafficking charges. Violence that has been unleashed on the society by armed criminal elements must be repelled. The operations being carried out under emergency powers are extraordinary measures, but they are an extraordinary response to an extraordinary challenge to the safety and security of our citizens. Today, May 27, 2010, the media were allowed in Tivoli Gardens, escorted by security personnel. I'm not upset with the, with the, with the, with the soldiers you see out here because they're told to do what they did. They're, they're leading you guys around all places where, guess what? You can't see no blood in no houses where people were killed. Tell them to take you to those houses. I believe that the people are being restrained from their constitutional rights, and that is not so. It should not be like that. The people in Tivoli Garden are being treated like hostage. Waga citizen! Waga citizen! Murder! Murder! So Coke was eventually arrested this week without a shot being fired. He was on his way to the American embassy to surrender. The government has appealed to his shower posse militia to remain calm, as when he appeared in court yesterday, Coke volunteered to be immediately extradited to the USA. 
gathered to discuss the way the case of Judas Coke raises implications not only about Jamaican society, but about the power that drugs has in the Caribbean and across America, are our Latin America correspondent, Rory Carroll, on the line from Venezuela. Hello, Rory. Hi, Tim. And in our Washington office, Chris McGreal, who flew down to Kingston to watch the security operation to try to arrest Coke at the end of last month. Good morning, Chris. Morning, Tim. So, Chris, first of all, what was that action like? It was fairly intense. The the first day of fighting um, was between uh, Coke's gang and the um, uh, security forces, the police and the army. Um, I think we now know that the gang pretty much started to withdraw that night and was largely gone by the second day, um, at which point the, the army swept through the area um, shooting, uh, it seems, um, at uh, young men in particular, uh, sometimes taking uh, detainees out and uh, executing them. Um, and by the time that we entered the, that area, Tivoli Gardens, on about the fourth day, um, it was clear that the, there had been a lot of fighting. There was evidence of explosions and a, a lot of bullet holes. And the population, what was interesting to me was the population was on the whole completely hostile to the security forces. The women in particular were booing and shouting at them. And it all took place in Prime Minister Bruce Golding's own constituency. He has alleged political ties to Cook, doesn't he? That's a reflection of, of long-standing ties, which really developed um, shortly after independence, when the two main political parties in Jamaica um, uh, sought to keep control of their constituencies through these gangs. Um, and over the years, um, these these uh, various areas, neighbourhoods of um, of Kingston in particular, but across Jamaica formed where gangs, different gangs were in charge, loyal to one or other of, of the ruling parties at the time. I think that uh, Golding has uh, sought to try and ease that, break that link. This is partly what this is about. But it, it was also true that before he came to power, the gangs which used to serve the political parties had actually, through the drug trade in particular, grown much more powerful than them. And that had alarmed not just actually some of the politicians, but also the, the population of Jamaica as a whole. Rory, there's quite a complicated link between the US and Jamaica over drugs, isn't there? I mean, deporting criminals to Kingston, for instance. Yes, I mean, every couple of weeks there's a Con Air flight which deports Jamaican-born criminals who have been convicted in the US uh, of various crimes, in some cases just immigration uh, offences, in other cases um, these are, are, are drug lords, and they're basically dumped back in Jamaica. And some of these guys had left Jamaica as children, um, so they really they feel that they're American, um, and they don't know... They don't feel at home in Jamaica and they feel disorientated. And so inevitably, they turn back to crime. And uh, according to the Jamaican authorities, they then export crime back to the United States because they're then able to use the networks they built up in the U.S. Uh, from a new base in Kingston. Um, and so the Jamaicans say this is the Americans, by dumping the problem, are actually just making it worse for both sides. So why does the USA want Coke so badly? Well, because he seems to just come into the, the, the sites of the district attorney, attorneys and they feel that he was one of the, the, you know, the, the Mr. Big and there seems to be a, a political will uh, to get him. Um, but I think there can be little doubt, um, either in Washington or certainly looking at it in South America, that this is not really going to change anything in the long term. I mean, if we've learned anything from the drug war for the past 10 years, it's that you can take down one guy, but an, a new network or a new boss will take over. And these networks have an, uh, an extraordinary capacity for being versatile and surviving and evolving and morphing into new forms. Whenever the authorities uh, crack down on one side, they'll emerge on the other. 
So, I mean, I think there'd be little doubt that we're going to have a, a new uh, Coke taking over uh, the Jamaica patch in the next few weeks. And months. And Chris, from the Washington end, is the DEA going to make a big splash about this trial of Coke later on? Coke's name has caught the headlines here because of the of the violence that took place in Kingston. Um, I think he, his arrest would otherwise have gone largely unnoticed in the United States. You know, as Rory says, there's quite a lot of Jamaicans who are picked up and tried here. Um, I think... Uh, also, as Rory says, you know, the, there's an acceptance here that this is a small victory in a much bigger war. So I think uh, if his trial has any impact at all, it will actually be uh, if he decides to spill the beans about the, the political contacts, um, about the role of, of politicians uh, in in protecting the gangs over the years. Uh, his own father played a similar role until he died in a Jamaican prison cell. And I think that Coke could do an awful lot to embarrass um, uh, Jamaica's political parties and, and Golding, the prime minister himself. That may, in, in the end, be where he his trial proves to be most significant. Well, that's an opportunity to talk to our reporter in Kingston itself, in Jamaica, Ross Scheel, and ask him a little bit more about the response in Jamaica and Kingston to the way that Coke's uh, case has suddenly moved very fast in the last couple of days. Uh, was it a surprise yesterday at court when Coke asked to be extradited? Not really. There had been reports that he was going to ask to be extradited. Al Miller had said, Al Miller, who was the pastor who was accompanying at the time that he was arrested, um, that they're on the way to the United States Embassy to do just that in terms of handing him over to U.S. authorities. So people weren't really that surprised. So why was he actually wanting to go to the United States to face the music? Firstly, he's, he has distrust of the police and the security forces. Um, his father died in Jamaica custody while waiting extradition. Um, he burned to death in his prison cell in a mysterious fire. So he has a deep mistrust. What's been the reaction in Jamaica to his surrender? Have people been glad? It's been a very long month. Um, in you know, We've been living under a limited state of emergency in Kingston. And yes, people were relieved. But in, obviously in his community, people had mixed reactions. They were happy that he was alive and well, but they still support him. And Dulles has supporters in many inner city communities in Jamaica. Have things remained calm, though, as the government has requested? Yeah, very much so. So, Ross, why actually did Golding decide eventually to extradite him? It had been a long process. It lasted about nine months since the extradition request had made, and government had challenged um, the grounds of the extradition. You know, the grounds of the extradition, saying that the, the evidence wasn't legally gathered. Um, a, a decision which is, tends to be supported by mainstream legal opinion in Jamaica, but there was a lot of pressure. Um, both in terms of public opinion and we would believe that diplomatic pressure as well. Um, but what really forced his hand was his his party, the Jamaica Labour Party, hired the services of a U.S. law firm, Manet Phelps and Phillips, to lobby the U.S. government. And government there was government wasn't willing to answer questions on the issue until until after about a month after it was revealed in Parliament by the opposition. And Bruce Golding was forced to admit um, that he had sanctioned the hiring of the U.S. law firm. And in fact, this, this episode actually, actually pushed him to offer his resignation beforehand. Um, and he made a national address to the, to the nation saying that um, the issue had divided the nation and that he was going to be signing, um, that the government would, would sign the extradition and then issue the arrest warrant. Chris, then, 
Why did Christopher Dudas Koch inspire such loyalty, do you think, among the Tivoli Gardens residents? Well, I spoke to them about this, um, and it's fairly straightforward. They felt completely abandoned and let down by successive governments in Jamaica, and Koch um, provided them with many of their necessities. He he helped educate their children, he paid for their health care. He did what drug lords have done from Colombia to Mexico and to Jamaica, and to some degree, what warlords have done in other parts of the world. He simply replaced the government um, and built up a loyalty. Um, uh, He also provided uh, employment of a sort to many of its young men and brought relative, strange as it may seem, uh, relative quiet to a place like Tivoli Gardens by when you have a powerful gang like that, you don't actually have an awful lot of petty crime. Very like Northern Ireland or the uh, back streets of New York under the Mafia, presumably. Well, indeed. And in fact, um, it was interesting talking particularly to women about how loyal many of them were to Coke. Um, You know, these women bring up their children in very difficult circumstances. And it's certainly true that that these gangs helped make life easier. That said, um, I think that there was also a a broader realisation in Kingston that the the price paid for the political uh, influence wielded by these gangs and the economic influence in the sense that they they, you know, ran extortion rackets and all of the rest um, was much too high. Rory, do you think that the Battle of Tivoli Gardens and the whole issue is not just one for Jamaica, but for the whole world? Overall, it's one for the, for the Jamaicans because um, they've paid for this, this saga in, in blood and, and heartache uh, on the streets of Kingston. And in a global sense, I mean, he's just one tiny link in the chain. And really, however horrible and, and bloody that the last few weeks were in, uh, in Kingston, this really was just one small skirmish. Um, and the taking down Coke really isn't going to change anything. I mean, for instance, you go to Medellin in Colombia, and you will find people there still talking highly of Pablo Escobar, um, who's one of the biggest mass murderers South America has had, Um, and the reason being that he, similar to Christopher Dudas Coke, had uh, built up a kind of loyalty among people, and yet here we see that after all of these, the drug war of the uh, the past 10, 20 years in in Latin America, in which, in case the United States has poured in about $6 billion of military hardware, We've had uh, thousands of people killed and jailed. And at the end of all of this, the production of cocaine in the Andes has been remarkably stable. Um, it just shifts sometimes from Colombia, then there's more in Peru, and then, get, then it dips in Peru, but then it rises in Bolivia. And what we've seen is just the amazing stability uh, of this market. And of course, the reason being, it's all being driven by people in Europe and North America snorting cocaine. Um, and as long as that continues, uh, we're going to have the likes of these actions uh, against drug lords, um, which will be hailed by the authorities as victories, but really it is going to be footnotes. What's actually the place of Jamaica in that drugs trade, exactly? It's a transit point above all, because the cocaine um, is almost all produced in Colombia, Peru, and Bolivia, and the various routes to the United States and to Europe. Um, some are now are being flown in large planes to West Africa, others uh, are being taken in submarines, homemade submarines, uh, up uh, towards the coast of the United States and Mexico, and others are being brought to the Caribbean. And so Jamaica is above all uh, a jumping off point or a transit point for these shipments. And of course, there is a domestic market as well, because it's what happens that then you have uh, local gangs get in on the action, they start dealing it, and so then you get this domestic consumption starts driving a crime wave as well. Well, finally, human rights groups in Jamaica have complained of the killing of 76 people in that operation 
operation to capture Cook. So why did he have such protection from the government? Jamaican human rights lawyer Philip Dale explains that the Jamaican system involves politicians using criminals, as we've heard, to control certain constituencies known as garrison communities. It's, it's well established that there's always been a link with political strongmen and politicians in Jamaica. Um, and this was, was just a magnification of that. The, the so-called strongmen maintain order in the community and play a Robin Hood kind of role. And um, the, 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 the politicians in turn are sustained by uh, the, the, the kind of influence that these strongmen have in the community. So that has always been the link. It's been an unseemly one, but uh, uh, it has worked to the benefit of both up to this point. This incident reflects a rupture of that. One of the ironies is that when this particular prime minister was not a prime minister when he was in opposition, he had offered full-throated critiques of, of this state of affairs. He found, of course, that that given the situation of patronage of the, the, the political process, it perhaps was not meet that there was that full-throated approach as a leader of the government. Does, do you think that the extradition of uh, Coke to the US uh, is a positive sign that Jamaica can move forward and sever its links between politics and criminality? Absolutely. I mean, we've gotten to this place by a contrivance of circumstances, but uh, the fact is that there seems to be a challenge to this informal system that has risen up um, or, or, or that rose up over the years um, of, of, of governments and their connections with garrison constituencies. Uh, whether it is, is going to be a sustained thing uh, is a big question. And I think uh, given, given the way that civil society in Jamaica has, uh, has responded quite robustly to this situation, uh, I want to think that they will, will, will hold this government and whatever government accountable in relation to, to, to strongmen in garrison constituencies. So, so to, to that extent, uh, one, I think one can be optimistic. So Rory and Chris, that was Philip Dale's hope there that things will change in Jamaica. Do you think there really are signs that Jamaicans will end the link between criminal strongmen and politicians? Certainly when I was there, the steps the government was taking simply in actually extraditing Coke, but also in what they were saying, uh, did demonstrate an acknowledgement that, that this relationship had to end partly because the, of the damage it does to Jamaica, its economy, its politics, and partly because actually the broader population was now sick of it and the politicians were tainted by it. However, having said that, um, to break that link uh, takes a lot more than simply extraditing a few gang leaders. Um, it takes the government to step in and offer the services, fulfill the role that it hasn't done in Jamaica for decades. And when you talk about that to the to government leaders in Jamaica, they acknowledge it. But you say, well, so what are you going to do about it? And what you realise is there's not much of a plan. And I think until the people of Tivoli Gardens come to see that their interests lie in looking to the government rather than to gang leaders, I think it's going to be very hard to break the influence of the gangs completely. And Rory, there have been no confidence votes in Jamaica's parliament against the prime minister. Can he remain in power? Well, I would say the odds are pretty good that he, he will. I mean, this has been a very, very rocky time for him and his credibility uh, abroad 
and domestically has been to some extent damaged. But he, he could, um, if he's smart, be able to show that he's now taken a very tough decision. He stood up to some of his own constituency and to, for the greater good uh, is one way he could pitch it. And so, yes, I would say he, he's a very good chance of survival. And do you think that Jamaica's changed for good yourself? No, I think it's too soon to say that. I think, uh, for example, you just look at uh, the levels of impunity that the police have uh, when they go around killing young men. And this has been documented time and again by various human rights groups. And in terms of detection rates as well, um, that you've seen that occasionally when they br- brought in some British police, initially uh, the homicide rates fell, but then they just crept back up again. So I think the, the problems are just so deeply rooted um, that it's going to take more than taking down an occasional drug lord to, to, to end them. And the reason being is just that it's all being driven by, by demand, uh, which means that there's so much money and so lucrative uh, the drug trade that any country would struggle to, uh, that is in the path of the drug trade, and especially in this case, just by a quirk of geography, Jamaica happens to be right in, in, uh, in the path of the, of the, of the drug trade. Um, and so therefore, given that it has, it has rather weak institutions, um, they really struggle to grapple with the challenge of this when there's so much money to be made from drugs. How can the weak institutions of this country cope with it? And the answer is up to now, well, not very well. Well, this has been Guardian Daily. My thanks to our foreign correspondents, Chris McGreal and Rory Carroll, and my colleague producer, Andy Duckworth. My name's Tim Maybe. Thanks for listening. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world.